0: the stops. This is Motley Fool Money.
1: Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that well hopes to get some benefit from U.S. economic growth or lack thereof. I'm Scott Phillips, and as always, I'm joined by Doctor Anirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you?
2: G'day, Captain. Uh, I am all right. I, you know, it could be better, but I'm all right. <laughs>
1: You always say that. You're, I, the day you say you're fantastic, I'm going to start worrying is
2: all I'm saying. Well, you know, it's, it's, I always like to have grass half green sort of, you know, it's grass is green, always on the other side. You know, it's half cloudy, half sunny. Too much optimism, optimism I think, makes me complacent. So I like to oh, be okay. Okay. a little, little optimist. And a little like pessimist it. at the same time.
1: <laughs> All right. man we're going to get straight into the podcast. We've got a heap to cover this week. We have got U.S. economic growth. We have got U.S. interest rates. We have got banks by the dozen, or at least a couple of them. We've got a potential private equity takeover, maybe possible. Let's talk about that. And dilution central. We've talked about that a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, mate, and we can't not do it again. We'll get talking to that. Also, some spectacular sales growth that brings with it a lower share price. Shall we do it? Let's do it. Let's get on with it.
0: Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Okay, mate, let's get started at the very top. The big macro as we do most weeks. This was a, f- a fantastic number. It, not in terms of great result, but the sheer size of it. US economic growth for the first quarter of this calendar year was released overnight our time. We're recording this on Thursday as we are want to do these days. And Wednesday night, about 11.30 or so, I was still up doing some work with Channel 9 and the little Wall Street Journal alert came up on my phone. Economic growth in the US was minus 4.8% for the first quarter. Now, if you think about the fact that coronavirus really didn't impact us till the second half of that first quarter, 4.8% is a massive fall. And so, of course, shares, well, they rose. Shares on the S&P 500 overnight, uh, again, Wednesday night, were up by 2.7%. Now, I'm going to ask you, mate, I, 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 have a, I have a view on this, as you know, Alison won't be surprised. But I'm going to ask you, is the market mad? How, how is it possible that a 4.8% contraction in the economy leads to a 2.7% rise in share prices?
2: So I, you know, um, as we do, <laughs> I'll make up some theory <laughs> of, what, <laughs> of what might be happening. But, but I think, you know, here's the thing, right? The result, okay, so 4.8% is hardly telling the real story because, as you just said, it's really the second half, right? And the, the results are gonna be actually worse when you look at the second quarter because they're gonna show the full impact, right? U.S. unemployment numbers are something like 26 million, which is out of 160 odd million people um, in the workforce or something like that, Some, in, in that ballpark. Well, it is just a huge amount of um, unemployment. Putting that into the context, if you put that unemployment number in the context of the extreme low unemployment numbers that they've had just before that, uh, it is a significant, significant um, change, right? It's a huge disruption. Now, so I, th- I think a couple of things to keep in mind. So the markets did react savagely to the bad news and the closing of economies and everything, right? So the market really pulled back hard and fast and then sort of since then you know the market has slowly slowly readjusted recalibrated itself now the market is a forward-thinking machine Um, a couple of things have happened i think overnight uh, that i think are important so this big trial that this company called Gilead has been doing this is a large trial um, that Gilead has been doing which is across multi-country and it is showing some promise in treating patients of covid-19 who are in the hospital and that's that's important and it's showing showing promise and it's the first statistically valid trial that's number one number two is um, there's a sense that you know definitely so for example australia is potentially past the peak you know people you know most of europe probably is potentially past the peak at least this time around and maybe the us is also getting close to the peak or you know past the peak so people are now looking past Next step: How do we open? How do we, you know, restart? So that's good news, right? So it could be that Q two is peak, and then we sort of start improving. So the market should improve. With that, That's number two. Number three would be that uh, some of the results are interesting that are coming from, you know, especially from the tech side. Is tech companies have not been impacted that much as one would think. Um, you know, a lot of companies have adopted uh, work from homes and things like that. So. There are winners, there are losers uh, in, in sort of this, uh, this situation, but it seems like a lot of the larger companies, especially tech-based companies, have not been disrupted that much. Of course, and I've discontinued for that for a very long time because the economy is so interconnected, everybody hurts, right? But we also have to keep in mind something, else, as my last point, is um, the U.S. Federal Reserve, uh, RBA, you, know, you name it, the European Central Bank, Everybody's basically said, we will do everything we need to do to basically yeah. solve the problem. So when, when you have this sort of, you know, kitchen sink type of solution being, uh, you know, kitchen sink approach, you know, we're going to throw whatever needs to be thrown at it. Um, it seems like the world in overall, not just the not the companies, but people. So people have been proactive. They're doing social distancing. They're following the rules. The, the central, the, the governments have been giving financial stimulus, trying to help small businesses, trying to help you know, small, big, medium businesses. And then you have companies adapting to the situation and making the best out of it, trying to help each other. Then you have you know, all these efforts in vaccine and treatment and you know, Google and Alphabet together working, for example, to develop a contact tracing framework. Uh, that, that can be deployed globally um, you know, and that's just been released overnight. So I think there's a lot of impetus to get back to normal because everybody wants to get back to normal. So I think that is being reflected. Is it too much optimism? That's going to be hard to tell. Um, maybe there is a little bit of too much optimism and maybe we're going to see um, you know, if there's an optimism baked into it and then if you know, Q2 everybody knows is going to be bad, but then if people don't start seeing improvements as pe- maybe in the market overall is expecting, and I don't know, I'm just speculating, maybe in Q3, Q4, maybe there's the you know, pullback at that time. Um, so is a whole combination of things. Um, yeah, so that's sort of my ballpark thinking. I'm not saying the market is right. I'm just saying that you know, there's an explanation as to what, as, okay, I guess one more final point. Where would you park your money if you have money to park? Like if you're in a pension fund, if you're in you know, SMSF or you are a superannuation fund or you just got this money to be parked and invested, you, rates are zero. So you wouldn't be really putting them into bonds. You could put them in junk bonds, which are going to be extremely risky. Uh, or um, you put them in equities, right? So there's that other equation is that there's a lot of money that needs to be invested, I guess. And you know, where will it go? It, it looks like the equities are probably your best bet for return at this point. Um, mm. So, I mean, those are sort of, you know, commission facts.
1: That's my Mike, I like it. I, um, I'll i talk to the, the overnight move specifically here. And I think this is, I mean, we, we say this to people all the time, but your point, the market is, you're not saying the market is right, is a really important one because, you know, every time you see some bad news and share prices rising, the, the most logical, the most often accurate explanation is, the market was simply expecting worse. <laughs> so that's, you know, and that's, and that's always worth remembering, right? Because, um, you know, I, I spoke to some people this week and the question's come up a couple of times, you know, why is the, is the market ignoring the economy? And I keep saying people no. remember the, the market fell by almost 40% in the in the first bits of news of, of when coronavirus really hit hard. And so even though the recovery has been impressive in percentage points, it's come from a really, really low base, right? So. If you, let's let's do some round numbers. If you've got 100 bucks or 100 index points, and the market falls 40%, it goes from 100 to 60. Now, if it grows 10% from there, you're not getting 10 points back of the 40 you've lost. In other words, 40% of the fall, you're getting six points back, right? So, because you're getting 10% of 60 on the way back up, you're always using the new base as the as the base for the calculation of the percentage point gain. And so, I think the market here is up like what 15% or so, doc, from the the post-Corona lows. But again, that's 15% from the low, not 15% of those 40 percentage points that we lost coming back. And that's why it's really important to remember the base. So that's the first thing, even though there is some sort of air quotes recovery in share prices, maybe the market's wrong now. Maybe the market's right now was wrong before, but it's all about that sense of you know, the, the new view versus the old view. And I think overnight in the US, what we saw was, again, we're all speculating because there is no, there's, no, there's, no official, there's no official record of why investors did what they did at any given day, The question really is, you know, did the market expect worse from the GDP numbers? I have to believe the answer is yes, because that's why you see a 5% fall in in economic growth and a 3% rise in the share market because everyone went, oh, thank God it wasn't worse. You know, those who've been holding off buying or those who've been worried about the market uh, also also having that. Also worth saying, by the way, overnight we saw earnings from Facebook and Google in particular um, who had some some decent results, like Microsoft, I should say. Uh, had some decent results. So there is also some sense that the world's biggest companies are doing okay, as you already mentioned, in that environment. And that's, that's also kind of helping in some sense that, while the GDP numbers might be down, again, remembering that the stock market isn't the economy, as we say regularly. To some degree, those big companies doing well because they're so big, like our banks are in our market here, that has a really outsized impact on the market, both in terms of sentiment, but just simply in terms of index points, right? When, when the world's largest companies go up meaningfully, you know, that that that, that covers the, the, the bottom 300 or 400 companies in, in, in absolute terms. So, you know, when a Google or an Apple or, a, you know, someone like that has a good result, you're going to see that just simply be much more impactful than a couple hundred companies doing badly just because of the, the index weights. Agreed. All right, let's move on. Speaking, we well, saying the US actually, uh, the Jerome Powell, the US Fed chair, you, you already mentioned this, but promises to use the full range of tools to do whatever it takes. Now, those who've been following the, the markets for the last decade or so might remember Mario Draghi, the European Central Banker, Super Mario as he was nicknamed, that was, he was the famous whatever it takes. That was really what broke the back of the pessimism around the GFC and the not so much the, the cause of the GFC, which we know was um, largely subprime credit and that kind of stuff, but the kind of financial freeze that came with it, the, the freezing of international credit markets um, that really still Europe isn't out of entirely, but that whatever it takes comment from Draghi, which just basically said to investors and general economic participants, hey, it'll be okay, we'll do whatever it takes, worked. Jerome Powell taking a leaf out of his playbook.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the as, as we have said many times on this podcast, I think the fact that GFC happened is actually a blessing for this current crisis because otherwise we wouldn't have a template. This template really that, yeah, I mean, the, the reason we have problems is that you know credit markets basically freeze basically money stops stops moving if money stops moving, then basically people can 't borrow and people can 't board invest you know and when I say invest i don 't mean board invest as in like into in doing stocks i i mean borrow invest in productive you know building assets doing you know starting new businesses right, right. and things like that what keeps the get business going so not not telling anyone that they, you know you should board invest but but the, the the whole the whole idea that money needs to flow and that it needs to flow you know, from the people who have it, the savers, to the people who need it to do something with it, to build, you know, to build build assets, build businesses, build jobs, create jobs. And so that stops. And that's right. really the, often the problem. And, and I, this is really, like, I mean, everywhere you look at Australia too, like, I mean, everywhere, that's really been the focus, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you th- if you think about, you know, like what JobKeeper, for example, is trying to do, it's basically trying to say, you know, we understand that the, the business is currently in a, in a serious state of shock right it's like yeah. you know it's like the coronavirus patient in the icu but we're assuming that a lot of these patients are going to actually wake up and be fine and, and and therefore if we can just you know manage this current situation uh you know it's it's going to be okay so i think it's just it's trying to keep the productive base of the economy going so i i think that that is really helpful but the one thing I worry about is uh, sometimes when when people say that you know whatever it takes, it, sometimes it seems human just do a little too much, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, that might cause problems down the lane. But you know, in my mind, that seems like maybe that's the smaller problem of the lot yeah yeah. so um, you know let's get through this. and then once we get through this, um, you know I've seen a lot of positive news overall, as I said in the, in the in the previous part over the last say fifteen, twenty, you know like you know let's say half a month, and that, yeah. you know that that really, I think is is a is a move in the right right direction, whether it's you know relaxation of social distancing norms here or you know other developments that are happening. So, um yeah, so I, I think overall, great.
1: May i ask you a question actually without notice on, on this. Um, I'm curious, so we, we obviously, well, we think we know that Australia is doing better with corona than the US is in particular. Um, I saw, you know, we had something like seven cases, new cases on the same day as the UAE had 513 new cases. I mean, we're a small population and I'm not suggesting we should take victory laps. It's not about we're better than them or anything else, but there is, if you, if you line up the curves, we're all, we're all about curves these days. Everyone's learned about curves. If you line up the curves, it seems like as you as you kind of inferred, we're further along the, the path of, rest, of of lifting restrictions than perhaps most other com- countries are. Um, again, whether or not that we should do that, let's put the just the, the reality of what's probably likely to happen. That means, and Scott Morrison during the week talked about the fact that international travel in New Zealand may actually reopen while the rest of the international travel is closed. Now, I don't talk about travel necessarily. Though you're welcome to. I'm more curious as to your thoughts on the economic impact. So, in in some you know. Australia may well be in a better position economically, socially, health-wise than, say, Europe or the US. And a, mm-hmm. to some degree, we're an economy that has, you know, we're a trading economy, we're an international economy. Now, you don't have to have people well to send iron ore to China or to send, uh, you know, wheat to, to, to America. But on the same, by the same token, there is some element we know that the world economy matters a lot to the Australian economy. Just your thoughts on. Kind of, you know, if you're an optimist, you're going to say, look, Australia gets out of this sooner rather than later. The Australian economy actually does better growth-wise than some other economies simply because we get back into gear more quickly. But there's still that element of, yeah, that's all true, but we've got the international element of our economy still with a big, big question mark over it while the U.S. and Europe sort themselves out.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've been actually thinking about this. Um as to what happens, so it's interesting that different countries have different uh so- uh pathways here right so Australia and New Zealand, for example, are uh further ahead in the uh, the curve flattening um process right yeah now um however as you directly point out what you can only keep the curve flattened as long as you keep your borders closed
0: right exactly yeah, yeah.
2: so 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 that's the interesting paradigm, right? The interesting paradigm is that basically you will have no international tourism, and um, well, that's good for domestic tourism. It's mm-hmm. not good for all the millions of people that come here every year to spend money, right? Uh, that's right. one. It would it would also mean that you know there'll be no international. There's likely to be you know less international investments in the country. There's you know less international investment. So there's always the downside of that. Is um, you are. Uh, you have less flow of funds happening across Australia. So I think while well, the positive definitely is from a local economy starting and getting back on its feet quicker, um, there is that risk. I think the other thing that I, I think about and I worry about, and, and I guess the solution here is really a vaccine, is there is there would be this factor. So like So different countries are taking different uh, roots, right? So Sweden's one is very interesting. Sweden's Sweden's has significantly higher debt rates than uh, if you think if you think in relative to their population, right? So Sweden's population yeah. is about like say 10 million. They've had you know, maybe 1, 15, 1600 debts. If you scale that, um, that's you know if you just if you scale it even in Australian proportions, right? That's like you know two and a half times. That's significantly yeah. higher, orders of magnitude higher. What uh, now? It, this goes back to this debate of. What is right? What's wrong in terms of um, you know? You basically, they they have pursued sort of in many ways the herd immunity model, right? But with with mm-hmm. with lax uh, with lower levels of social distancing. So the question really is, does does the fact that you've had more damage in the beginning help you get back quicker, or does the fact that you've had less damage in the beginning actually help you get back? I actually don't know yeah, the I answer to that. Right. It's not clear to me what the answer is um but but overall like i mean I think here's the thing right A local local businesses businesses will i think get back, whether or not it helps in um getting back i think it's, okay let me let me rephrase it I think it's positive if if stuff opens up, then it's positive for businesses that currently struggle they will struggle less. Right. Yeah. Whether they're you know thriving or not, we don't know, but they'll struggle. Yes, that's, that's positive. I think that's that's, that's number one positive. Uh, local tourism will be a positive. Maybe trans Tasman uh, tourism will be a positive. Uh, lack of international tourism will be will be a negative. Net negative. Lack of international students will be a net negative. So there are a whole bunch of sectors that are going to be impacted if the borders have to remain closed because of. Um, our curve flattening and our current strategy right so and i'm not i'm and, and i'm I'm very supportive of the current strategy I, I actually think the current strategy or you know which prioritizes health over economy i think in the long run is beneficial i don't know whether in the short run um is i'm, I'm not 100 sure I, I don't really have a view mm. on it's really hard for me to figure out um, all the puts and takes involved, because there's just just so many. And ultimately, I think that it a global economy. If unless the global economy really recovers, I mean, if if the U.S. and the Chinese and the say you know the Europeans are consuming less, that has impact that has impact on the amount of our stuff. So uh, there's a whole bunch of related things that that matter. But net net, I think. Net, net I think I, I think we're a good position is and I think that the good position is is always a win whether it's in terms of less life slot loss whether it means you know businesses coming back to work sooner than expected um, I think I think that those are all all wins in my book and um, that's great
0: that's a good summary mate let's uh, let's move on Motley Fool Money Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's talk about
1: the banks. I know they're a favourite stock of yours. Now, I'm desperately hoping that over the last few years, probably almost three years old now, I suppose. Can't be far off that. Um, We have spent spent lots and lots and lots of time, uh, hopefully not boring our listeners too much, but reminding them that the banks aren't the be-all and end-all of the investment universe um, I'm not saying we predicted this because we didn't. No one predicted coronavirus, let alone the, um, you know, the, the flow and impacts from it. But you know, to some degree, the realities of the banking sector and the risks that people overlooked during the good times are coming to roost. We didn't know this was going to be the cause, but fair to say we weren't super surprised that this kind of fragility you know, was exposed by an event of some description or other. I think you and I probably thought it might be a Chinese shock or just a straight-out house price shock locally, something else. Um, or of its own volition in this case it wasn't it was coronavirus but this week alone two of the big four banks NAB and ANZ have been out we've seen NAB cut its dividend in half I think uh, maybe more two-thirds I think cut by and yeah, 60%. cash profits 60% cash profits fell by half ANZ out this morning again Thursday morning we're recording this cash profits down by 60% it's deferring its entire dividend is it?
2: Yeah, it's different deferring its entire dividend. Actually, for what it is worth, I'll give full marks to NZ for doing the, I think, from a capital allocation perspective, doing the right thing. Right. And I'll give absolutely negative marks to NAB for, <laughs> uh, for doing from a capital allocation, from a shareholder's point of view, doing absolutely what I would say is, um, I don't know, so you, it's it's just bad <laughs> yeah. because what, the, what NAB is doing is NAB is raising $3.5 billion in equity, fresh equity. That's basically dilution, right? Uh, so it's printing extra shares, quantitative easing of its share base. Um, and then that's close to 10%, maybe a little less. Actually, less than 10%. NAB is about a $54 billion market cap. Last one I checked, so it's, it's fairly less.
1: 6,7%, six, uh, six,
2: yeah. Yeah, six, seven percent That's dilution. And then it's using that. Uh, 900 million odds straight to pay back dividends right now. I think I, I know if, if, if I'm now, I'm hoping a lot of these people are going to sign up uh, for, uh, you know, dividend reinvestment plans. And while I like dividend reinvestment plans, I absolutely detest dividend reinvestment plans that are actually quantitative easing programs. So, so I, I don't mind a dividend reinvestment plan where the broker buys <laughs> me shares in the market. I absolutely mind a dividend reinvestment plan where new shares are printed. Um,
1: Okay. So uh, let's, I, let's, I think... let's, let's, let's just unsettle you from your high horse for half a second. I want yes. to talk about some of the, how we got here and then you can you can re-rant, which I love. You know, yes. I love a rant. Uh, so here's, here's the, there's a couple of things that, that really impacted earnings. The first was in NAB's case, and I'm pretty sure in ANZ's case, so I haven't said the detail. They're still copying some costs from the Royal Commission, believe it or not. And I've got to say, as much as you're bagging NAB about the dividend policy and you're probably right, what I think is unbelievable to me is the remediation costs still keep coming in. I think this is NAB's third bite at that particular cherry. It, it, it is it is bizarre to me that I think it was $1.1 billion was the most recently announced. That was three or four weeks ago before the results were handed down. So, oh, by the way, guys, another $1.1 billion of remediation costs for the, the, the findings of the Royal Commission. How they didn't know that six or 12 months ago is beyond me. Like, I get their skeletons in the closet. I get you got to do some more work on this stuff. But- when you're finding a 1.1 billion dollar bill under a lounge cushion, um, I don't, I don't, I just don't get it. I don't know how that happened. So that mini rant aside, that was part of the impact. I'm sure ANZ is still feeling that impact as well. There is a reduction in the just business as usual business at both these banks, and importantly for bank shareholders. And we'll get back to this if you, you can feel free to pick it up, or you can go back to your equity raising rant. But um, there's a massive increase at NAB, and I'm sure at ANZ of accruals and allowances for bad and doubtful debts. In other words, part of what's hurt their profits is actually not cash going out the door just yet. It is the reality that they're booking lower profits because their loan book they currently have. So if you, you, let's say you're a NAB, you've got, let's let's just say, make it easy for me, you've got hundred mortgages on your book. You would have said previously, look, one of those won't pay back. So I've got a bad and doubtful debt allowance. In other words, the chance they won't pay back of 1% of my loan book. Given this, given the unemployment, given the economic shock, they've said, oh, actually that might now be 3%. And so what you've got to do is you've got to reduce the carrying value of your loans by that and that hits the expense line on the P&L. And so that's what we've seen from NAB you've, and you've got to say, okay, that's a, that's an expense. Now, at some level, that's not a real expense. There's no cash flowing out the door yet, at least for the most part, but it's a recognition and a very welcome and frankly, massively belated recognition that that is true. I've, I've ranted and I won't, I won't steal your rant, but I've ranted before that banks have been carrying bad and doubtful debt allowances, which are stupidly, stupidly low. They're massively, they're always carrying too little because there's always going to be a downturn economically at some point. To assume, you know, the accounts are supposed to be conservative, right? You're supposed to take a conservative perspective, not a worst case, but a conservative perspective. Their bad debts are always way too low. And this is the banks having to pay the piper. So those are the three elements that have hurt earnings. And obviously by a lot, you know, NAB was down 50%, ANZ down 60%. They are less strong, more fragile than many people believe. And we're seeing exactly that. If a, if, if a couple of months worth of you know tough economic conditions, very tough economic conditions can hurt your profit by 50% and you're a massively leveraged business, something like 30 a 40 into one debt compared to the assets on your book, that's a that's a pretty scary place to be. Now, as you've then said, because of this, they've also all of a sudden gone, oh yeah, yeah we don't have enough money yet. <laughs> So we'll have to do something about it. And that's the basis for the capital raising, as you say. In NAB's case, they're still paying. In ANZ's case, they've deferred the dividends entirely. And as you say, there's a cash roundabout, merry-go-round, with NAB saying, hey, we'll give, you, we'll give you $800 million in one hand and we'll take three and a half in the other. Back to you. You know, I think that's a great summary.
2: So, uh, the, the the fragility, actually. So here's the thing, right? I think they're now basic taking. Basically, they're making reserves, as you said, for what is in the pipeline. So there's maybe some good news for them in the sense that if our economy is opening quicker, then the the sort of the losses that they're likely to experience is going to be less than. I guess maybe what they reserve, unless you know they're still reserving less, <laughs> which is always the risk, right? But here's I'm actually re- reading the Fin which is, or the Australian fin- uh, Financial Review, and this is pretty these this this line or these lines are pretty interesting. So ANZ has received 105,000 requests from Australian consumers or customers for loan deferrals on 36 billion dollars worth of wow. mortgages that represents 14% of its book. Like, you know, when you have a business which is one is to 10, one is to 14, as you said, leveraged, a little bit matters actually a lot, right? Uh, For these guys, a little bit actually matters a lot. And and there've been 19,000 requests in New Zealand for home uh, home deferrals, right? And NZ has also said that deferrals have been provided on 7.5 billion of commercial loans, representing 15% of all commercial customers. So this is, this is like basically, you know, again, this is like the worst case sort of scenarios that they might have imagined in their spreadsheet all coming to fruition at the same time when they're very leveraged. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you're going to have some sympathy for where they are and, uh, you know, but yeah, in, t- in terms of managing sort of, you know, it's, the, you know, the revolving, the thing, I, don't, I don't want to, you know, keep repeating that, but, you know, you you taking cash from someone and giving it to someone. You know, maybe you could have, you know, overall from an equity, like as a shareholder and as, an, as, as somebody, if somebody's a shareholder, they want to, you know, see uh, gains over a period of time, uh, total returns over a period of time, then, you know, diluting the base unnecessarily uh, seems, seems doesn't seem prudent. And I, and I totally get it that a lot of people, dim, uh, you know, depend on this. But nobody should believe that a dividend is an annuity, right? A dividend is not an annuity uh, in any way. Dividend should really be a percentage of, uh, cash, cash earnings. Right. And right, sure. Yeah, you know, most of the time it is guaranteed, but there are going to be times when it's going to be cut. Right. And if dividend ratios are, you know, payout ratios are very high, that's where the, the cutting probability increases substantially. So again, this is the, maybe it's a good lesson for shareholders to, to, you know, keep that in mind is, you know, don't think that, you know, dividend is guaranteed, you know, Nothing is guaranteed, really, right? I mean, if you want guaranteed, then you basically go to a term deposit or a government bond. And 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 in the moment you if we start treating the share market as guaranteed, that that's when we have sort of you know dislocation. Dislocation. So I think that you know, that's something again to keep in mind. But rant over.
1: <laughs> I like it, man. I like it. it's a good one. I, and I think this is the this is the it's it's a funny market that we're in, right? When like I guess you know we shouldn't be overly surprised. We. We've, we talk a lot about temperament around, I talk a lot about behavioural biases. And to some degree, bank, bank shareholders, NAB shareholders, particularly, at least in the eyes of the bank CEO and board, are demonstrating exactly that. They, they, took the, they take the view that bank shareholders would rather pay, a, you know, give out $3.5 billion on one hand and take $800 million back rather than just having a capital raise for 2.7 and being done with it. You know, there, there was a very clear, they're simply saying, we could do one of these two things. ANZ saying, no dividend, we'll take, you know, we'll, we'll manage things ourselves. NAB's saying, oh, we, we think you still want a dividend. Now, shareholders will decide whether that's true or not and the degree to which it's true. Um, and that's, I think that's where I find, that's where I struggle. I think theoretically you are absolutely met, a million percent right. At, 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 a, at a company level, if a, if a, if a company isn't the, the, own, uh, the owned entity of its shareholders who can decide or should decide how things are done, it, it's, a, it's a funny one, right? Like theoretically I'm, I'm internally jumping up and down as much as you are saying how, how the hell do you raise $300 billion of capital at the same time as giving back $800, what 900000000 million, whatever it is in dividends. It makes no mathematical sense, but at some other yeah. level, if, if, you, if you polled the bank's shareholders and said, what would you like? And they said, I would like the dividend and the capital raising at the same time, please. I, you know, at, at a very basic shareholder democracy level, isn't that what Nab should actually do? Because that's what its shareholders demand or want. Just just um, to, you know, for the sake of for the sake of the argument.
2: Yeah, but I mean, do, see, I mean, people can want whatever they want, right? I mean, you know, I can want more than hundred uh, percent of the cash profits as <laughs> as dividends, right? But it's, it, I think a want has to be rational, right? I think there's a bit of an irrational. What I think. I've seen this a number of times and I find this highly irrational that a company that has to actually raise cash to pay a dividend, that in my books is mind boggling. Like, I mean, that basically means you've got, you've got balance sheet issues, yeah. right? You don't, oh, you don't have- true. Yeah, so you've got balance massive balance sheets issues. And I mean if you look at, you know, NABS returns, right? I mean, NAB's returns, your 10-year returns are like, you know, uh, total returns are pathetic. Like they're basically, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you you have been better off with the index. Um, so why uh, and, and mind you the index is largely dominated by banks. <laughs> so so that tells you how bad the returns are bad. the returns are bad because uh, you you know, if you're a bank, capital allocation is really important, right? I mean, that's really what you're doing. And right. if you can't deliver on that, you've got a problem. And I think bank, you know, it just, just shows that you know, NABs results are just poor and weak and maybe it needs a rethink of what, you know, like it doesn't hurt. If you, you cut the, don't do the, you know, don't dilute weight. You, know, you can go back in six months time, maybe to paying back some dividends, right? And use this as an opportunity maybe to reset the base like, there's no reason that it has to be at the previous base because, well, you know, if earnings have changed, uh, so should the dividends, right? So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. what, what I think. I mean, I totally get that people expect certain income, but I, I think it's also on from the part of the people. Like, I think the mentality that I if I need a certain income and therefore I need income-producing stocks, I think, you know, as, as an investor, I find that that is a bit of a limited viewpoint. You could always invest in growth stocks and then sell off some. Yeah. and uh you know as as an income investor over a period of time and if you've invested if you've done growth investing properly then over a period of time actually your growth stocks should turn into uh you know dividend paying companies you don't necessarily need this transition or be in income paying stocks um just for the heck of it you know what i mean so yeah, totally. yeah it's, it's a philosoph, it's a philosophical difference i guess but yeah
1: i in front uh, of capital, so I, I you are wrong it was it's mostly it was ever the advocate but it was it's just a, that there there is something around you know, theoretical versus kind of, you know, the owners want, if, if I owned a, a bank outright and I want to take more money out of that bank, as long as I wasn't breaking your rules, uh, it, it's, you know, there, there is, there, you know, I think what our job is, is to say to people, hey, if A, if you're doing that, just understand you're being a little bit irrational and B, a bank that needs to do that is not the safest investment in the world and it's not certainly as safe as most people assume. I think those are the two things we'd want to say loud and clear, regardless of your individual, as a listener, your views, on what banks should do. Doc and I have a, have a view of what we think they should do regardless of what the shareholders want. And I don't mean regardless as in they should ignore the shareholders, just that all things being equal, there is a better path. But the fact they're not taking that path should be a, what, yellow flag, mate? Orange flag? Maybe a red flag? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I would say yellow flag. I, I mean, look, I'm not saying the bank is, you know, in danger of collapsing or anything. It's not, um, but it's just, I think it's you know the greater good of the entire shareholder base is if the capital management policies are better, right? Over the long term, I know it hurts the current, like short term, but over the long term, you know, we're all about you know thinking a little bit about you know how things would be if you are you know, taking a five to ten year horizon, um, not a horizon right now sort of thing. So it's good for the bank. I think it's good for the shareholder base of the bank. I think it's good for the society overall if the banks are managed in that fashion. Um, I, if if i was you know in the, on a board uh, of these things right right now would be a perfect time to reset expectations that you know don't expect dividends to rise every year because if my business doesn't deliver increased earnings well i can't deliver increased you know um dividends i think that's sort of the expectation that i know and, and cutting and setting resetting a base is, yeah. um, is is a good thing i think it's it's almost like the yeah it's, yeah. it's the wrong, It sort of seems like, you know, it's an afterthought sort of thing. You know, you're not growing the business. You're not managing it for a long term. You're managing it for currently for dividends, which, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a circular logic here, but anyways, yeah, I think we're beating this horse to like death.
1: <laughs> All right. Let's, let's move on now. I will, I will ask you though. Um, you, you're, you you're happy with ANZ's strategy. Share prices are falling a lot. Are you tempted to look at the banks, even cursorily, just to see if there's value there? How are you, I mean, I, the ANZ has taken, NAVA arguably has taken the softer option of the two, but both have done what needed, what they, the boards think need to be done to get them through, or at least give them a better chance to get through. No, no, uh, there's no saying there won't be more dividend cuts or more capital raises. The shares have fallen a long way, mate. It, it, even you at some point are gonna start to say, maybe I should look at the banks just in case there's value there. What do you reckon?
2: It's a good question. You know, we were chatting about that right a couple of days back. You know, I was was actually looking at NAB's results and you know, trying to look at where the PE is and things like that. Um, So here's, you know, well, this was the summary of my thought at least. Like, I mean, on a on a on earnings level, they are. I don't think they're particularly cheap. They're not expensive, maybe. They are not particularly cheap either, right? So, I mean, if you if you think if you sort of take NAB's uh, cash earnings of that that you just reported, multiply that by two, assuming that to be sort of the you know the normalized earnings right now. That's like on a on a nine times earnings. At you know is it is it is it cheap? I don't know. Maybe you know should maybe it should trade at twelve times. That that gives you some room from yeah. nine to twelve, right? Thirty yeah. percent room, and and maybe you can hope for some earnings improvement. So maybe that gives you maybe you have a fifty percent room for improvement. But here's the thing, right? Yeah. It's a lot of speculation involved. You know, you need the share price to move. You need the earnings to improve, not, not deteriorate. You know, it could be that the next half is worse. Um, uh, and you you need the market to sort of, you know, go back to giving it a higher multiple. You know, again, the thing with the multiple too is why should it have a higher multiple, right? It's, it's all theoretical, Like right? I mean, should it really yeah. have a higher multiple? Um, I'm not sure, should it have a higher multiple because, you know, it's uh, largely because again, like these are, these are retail banks that, serve so retail customers there is a finite amount of growth in fact what i would say is that if the borders remain closed they have serious headwinds because there's yeah, never right. be no um you know there's gonna be no migration that's you know you forget that the migration that's is actually actually
1: yeah so population growth falls right
2: yeah population growth is going to fall so i mean on a on a net Uh, even before this, while we were having growth on a a net population, on on an adjusted population basis, we actually had, you know, GDP going backwards, right? Um, Now, that's not the way you do it. But if you you take out 200,000 people from the equation, what people would, you know, what we don't realize is that 200,000 people that come actually bring skills, productivity, and money. (laughs) They need places to live. Therefore, that drives property prices up. Take that out of the equation and you've got a problem. So so effectively, you know, they, they, there's headwinds here, um, right. right? And then if you think about the, the other way to think about this is, uh, you know, this goes back to what we were discussing in the beginning, is that if you think about Australia, and you think of the high debt to disposable income, I know you don't like that measure, but here's the thing, right, <laughs> here's the thing, take out the population as a whole, anybody who's living here, I'm living here, my de- debt to disposable income, you know, is high. When I import a person, I'm using the wrong horrible term, importing a person from, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah, But let's say, but let's import someone from say, I don't know, let's say, say South Korea. They sell their house in South Korea and then move. So they are actually coming here with zero debt in effective, if that terms, right? So you're adding uh, uh, right. the, these 200,000 people that you add to the society every year via migration, yep. you, you actually reset the base and you're gonna, these guys can now take on the same levels of debt that we have. So this is, you know, I like calling the, you know, in many ways, I call it property that in the pyramid, right? It's a pyramid because the, as long as you keep adding people to it and you can encourage those people to take on the same levels of that the society has, you can eke out some growth. Now, um, when you can't do that, as the current situation is, that's going to get really interesting because, you know, you can't, you know, the, the prices, the lever for price movement, which yeah. is really demand, yeah. disappears. yeah, Right? And then, take then you know, if you think of the rental market, you take out the students. Well, there's all these foreign students that come to Australia to, you know, learn. They're not coming. So there's, a, you know, the reverse pressure. So I think, so the banks are in a really, like the banks, in fact, if, here's the thing, we, do, we said the stock market is not the economy, but our banks are basically a good reflection of our economy, yeah. <laughs> a solid reflection of our economy. So in our economy, is not in a good place if you think about, in that, you know, you in a better place, but you're exactly overall is it like a growth economy right now, we are not. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know. So, you know, I'm not a person, you know, I'm not interested in trying to, it's basically a guess right now. If I have to be a bank investor, I'm going to guess, okay, I'm going to make some money in 18 months. I really don't know if I can make it. So I'm not even going to try, right? Yeah. And I'm exactly. not an income investor, so I wouldn't, you know, I don't, I don't want that, you know, four percent or three yeah. percent or whatever yield they're giving. So yeah. no, I'm, I'm basically a pass on banks. The banks are still a sell for me.
1: Nice. I, uh, I I've, I've been, I struggle with this one. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a funny investor. I've kind of got these deep value roots and these contrarian roots and. And then, and then kind of growth on the other side. You know, I kind of flip between the two depending on hopefully where the opportunities are. Maybe, maybe that means I'm jack of all trades, master of none. I'm not sure. But um, I have to say, like, at some level, if, if NAB shares are up 50% in the next 12 months, I won't be surprised, right? Because of that re-rating you talk about. It doesn't take anything you have to increase. It just has to be a little bit of pessimism that goes out of the share price. A P of 9 that goes to 12 or 13 or 14. I mean, a P of 9 that goes to 14 is more than a 50% growth in share price just on the back of a different sentiment from investors. And I have to say that's, if not alluring, it's certainly interesting to me to wonder about. And I will not be at all surprised if we're here, you know, in April or May 2021 saying, wow, NAB has been the best performing stock, or one of the best performing stocks of the 200 over the last 12 months because of that re-rating change, right? And I think that's, that's always real. It's always possible. And so that's why I'm kind of intrigued. I won't say interested because I don't really think I'll ever buy it, but it, it, does, it does tickle something, some part of me. And just to finish off on the banks too, I just want to, you know, we we do this and we kind of keep an eye on social media and stuff as we go through. As we were, as you were talking about, I saw a tweet from Elise Morgan who presents ABC's The Business Program. And she said the total provisions, so bad and doubtful debts from ANZ, $1.7 billion. The profit, $1.3 billion. In other words, the provision for bad debts is now larger than ANZ's half-year profit. So think about that as you think about the, the, the sort of, I won't say stability of the banks, I don't expect anything to go broke, but when you think about the kind of profitability of the banks and how leveraged they are, the kind of the chance that this could go badly, when, they're, when they're their provision, their expectation of bad debts is larger than their half year profit, that should tell you a heap about the risks that are present in these companies that otherwise people have assumed in the past were safe for sales. Should we move on?
2: Let's move on.
0: Real money advice from real people, not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple
1: M. I want to talk to you about supermarkets. I want to talk about the uh, fantastic results we've seen from Coles and Woolies. Coles sales were up 13% announced was yesterday the day before, I think. And I've just seen again, speaking of social media, some numbers from Woolies Woolies sales are up 11.3% in the third quarter. Their online sales are up 34%. Now you'd be excused for thinking this was some brand new hip kind of fashion label or, or you know, some electronics, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the new Apple iPhone has been sold through Woolies or something. These are numbers you never, ever, ever see. Sales of sales growth of two, two and a half percent was kind of the average result. And that was partly food inflation, a couple of new stores, you know, you have to really scrab, scrabble hard to get to that sort of growth. When the two of them together are averaging 12% sales growth, that's effectively eight more. <laughs> I mean, we know what it is, right? It's all toilet paper, rice, and pasta. But those are <laughs> phenomenal numbers. Shows you that the, literally the value. I don't mean value is in good stuff. I mean value is in the actual price, the, you know, adding up all the, all the sales of panic buying.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a... Uh, well, why did the price pull back? I mean, you know, partly because maybe, um, you know, as you said, toilet paper. If you've got an overstock toilet paper supply now for the full year, you're not going to buy toilet paper for the full year. Maybe you're not going to buy pasta uh, for a while, and probably you're not going to buy rice. And maybe you know, um, I mean, uh, if you bought some canned tuna and stuff, you're not going to buy that either, right? So there's a, there's the sense that you know maybe the uh, maybe some of the purchases have been pulled forward, but. Yeah, like, I mean, they benefited from a lot of the panic buying. Um, and it also, I mean, to some extent, you know, if everything else is closed and, I mean, you know, you, you have to buy stuff, like, um, what do you do? You either buy here or you buy them online. So, I mean, you know, and they've been great in terms of, in, in in their organizational capability and capacity. They have They have done well. They've, you know, maintained supply and they have, you know, done all the right things. But, I mean, the share prices are pretty, I mean, you know, like I'm looking at, it's not that far off. Like, I mean, you know, all-time high was, or 52-week high was $18. Now it's like 15.50. Um, dollars 50 It's yielding 2.7%. I mean, it's, uh, you know, like as a, as a I mean, eventually this coal can't grow, can't have that. Thirteen percent growth <laughs> in perpetuity right? it's just not going to happen. I say so it. people I realize. Say <laughs>
1: That's <laughs> fair. That's this, fair. Is a, okay. this is going to be a one-off, right?
2: A, yeah, exactly. I mean, two percent, as you said, something would be great, right? I mean, I would say two percent is awesome because how do you deliver more than that? It's really hard. I mean, you—you you know, Coles would deliver that by stealing some share from Woolies and Woolies would try to steal some share from Coles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's only so much people can buy. So, that's I don't great. know. I mean, the, the prices, I mean, are are what they are. I mean, they're, they're significantly off the lows, so.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, a, that, and that's why share prices fell, right? Is they, they, I don't know who expected. I mean, maybe it's just the, the closing of a, a whole lot of trades of people who thought they'd buy the sales growth and sell when the numbers came in. I don't know who really honestly could have expected. You know, the company's saying, oh, we, can't, we don't really know what's going to happen with sales growth over the next couple of months yet. And I don't know who should be surprised by that. I do wonder sometimes the market does seem a little bit bizarre to me. I, I don't, I don't really know who was, who was surprised by any of these numbers. Um, if anything, I was kind of surprised on the upside. I think, you know, when you think about how much other stuff they sell, um, meat, milk, you, you can't panic by that stuff, right? Like, so the, size sales of 30%, it's actually pretty impressive. If you had to break down what Woolies and Coals sell in a, in a, in a month and you can take out, okay, maybe you've got some extra baked beans, but you can't have extra meat. You can't have extra fish. You can't have extra milk. Um, I guess you can fill your freezer up to some degree, but like the sheer dollar value of that growth is impressive given frankly how, how stock for the rest of the sellers still are. I mean, you can get almost everything except for those couple of categories. So, um, you know, A, we've done a lot of panic buying, but B, those numbers are big. I don't know who was who was unhappily surprised by the results, both both the, the absolute sales numbers and the fact that they're going to be lower moving forward. It's kind of like no kidding Sherlock kind of moments, right? To, to make it PG. Um, I, I don't know who was who was surprised, who should have been surprised. It just seems a little bit strange to me, but. What do you do? That's that's the why they. I, I
2: have not, I have not read the report, but I'm going to speculate that you know one of the things I noticed in my calls, at least, was um, the toilet paper was no longer discounted when it was available, and the, <laughs> you <don't> know, know. <laughs> and when the uh, Coca Cola is available, it's no longer discounted. <laughs> so to combine that with panic buying and no discounts is going to have a big impact. But <laughs> that yeah, helps, right? Like, yeah, that have Yeah, as you said, not surprising at all.
1: May, let me talk to you about some, um, very quickly, we'll, we'll probably do this later, but let's talk about some trends for a second. Uh, I <clears throat> Growth in woolly sales of 34% online is A, not surprising, but B, pretty impressive, given how much they actually restricted online. They, they actually canceled deliveries for a while, right? It was only um, immune-suppressed people and, and elderly who could actually even get online deliveries. We've seen Kogan sales, and I own shares for the record, up 38%. Will online sales up thirty four percent? They've got to be in this. Yes, some of it is going to be simply people just buying more of the stuff they're already going to buy. So you know, throw extra toilet paper, extra bag of flour on the order. This, this, I, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical as to the change that people are, are seeing. I, I always use the example: in 987 was supposed to be the end of conspicuous consumption. Um, that hasn't happened in the thirty three years since. So you know, sometimes we we think these is going to be changes in behavior that don't ever actually happen. I think the big step change people are perceiving, I think of all for the, of every 10 that people think are going to happen, maybe one or two actually do, um, because we're kind of creatures of habit and we're, you know, the changes we think we're going to make don't always come true. Uh, even, even more recently when we're supposed to be paying lower prices for things because of the GFC, the share still fell 40%. So, you know, that, that, that's kind of human nature 101. That being said, there will be some trends that either start or are expedited. And I think online, commerce generally in, in whatever form. As I said, I'm not surprised Kogan sales are up because you're at home, okay, I'll buy something on Kogan. Kind of makes sense, right? Like what else do you do? <laughs> so many emails from them and I guess that looks, you know, I'll buy an exercise bike or I'll buy a, a something. When Woolies sales are up 34% year on year, that tells me that people are, at least for now, changing their habits. And some of those people are going to be discovering or getting comfortable with online shopping. This to me feels like the, the largest probable ongoing trend that I think comes out of
2: Corona. What do you think? Yeah, I think I agree with that. So like, I mean, you know, e- e-commerce for example, I think, I don't know the numbers, whether there are numbers equivalent for Australia or not, but I would assume that it would be very similar. In, in the US, e-commerce is about like, you know, 12, 12% or so of total total commerce. Um, you know, so, so I mean, brick and mortar is still substantially right. large, right? So there's a lot of, you know, and you think that over the long term, that number would you know get somewhere maybe 50-50 or something like that or maybe 60-40 or maybe even 35-25 yeah. yeah. I don't know what time frame but so I mean this this could accelerate and it you know it probably makes a group of people who were previously uncomfortable with that experience maybe uh, you know moving to online experience now it doesn't mean that certain online people are only going to win right i mean it, it, as as you rightly have pointed out i mean There's no reason to believe that Woolies can't do it and they are doing it, right? There's no reason to believe that Coles can't do it and they are doing it. So, I mean, there's that. So, it doesn't, I'm not necessarily saying that's the doom of, I think a good retail operator who can operate across both channels and do so efficiently would have a future. So, I think that's that. The one, actually, the the one thing I I think that may change um, is this work from home culture. I think the work from home likely will um y- you know, get a serious impetus because what people might have discovered is is in terms of productivity, maybe your productivity is actually good. And if you have opportunity of maybe doing one or two days of work from home, it actually gives you a better work life balance and, and and things like that. And maybe yeah. that will take the other related to this is I really think, and, and this is based on I was actually reading a transcript of um, of a business um, in based off the U.S. called Paycom. And they, it's, it's basically, it's okay, so you context and maybe I'm digressing too much, but Paycom is a bit like uh, Elmo here in in Australia. So it's a, okay. you know, human, human capital management company provides, uh, you know, payroll and human resource onboarding, you know, like leave management and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then similar to um, Elmo, they serve mostly, this sort of smaller end of uh, the customers. so not large enterprises, but, you know, SMBs type of customers, right? So they're a good read of sort of the SMB feature. One of the things that I read in that transfer, which, which struck me as really interesting, is that they're, they're saying that, yes, um, one of the things that they've discovered is work from home and sales, actually, and online sales work really well or at least uh-huh. it's working really well now. And what uh-huh. they're finding is that there's a, there's increased productivity because a, a sales manager who could, you know, or the lead salesperson who could actually do maybe one deal in a given time frame, is not able to actually do six deals <laughs> or effectively because they are, you know, they're able to spend more quality time and, you know, maybe do demos and things like that. There, so I think there's that sort of change, the thing that people did not think could be done um, that is potentially possible and, and and I think and I'll delineate a couple of things big deals I think still happen with handshakes right so if you're, you know if you're a big company um, like you know you're Oracle and you want to sign a database deal with some you know government somewhere uh, you probably have to shake like tens of hands. <laughs> that sort of deal is not going to happen on um, uh, you know on, on video conferencing but a lot of the smaller deals could technically happen at least a lot of the initial travel could disappear so I, I think there is some impact in terms of how business overall works. And you know efficiencies. You know things like, um, you know, these online tools or stuff that we're using right now, like Zoom, for example, or Skype, or you know, Webex from, from Cisco, or uh, many others, like you know, Team. Um, these are things will will uh, will take hold, and I think there's yes there's going to be probably some impact on how people think about business and business travel. So that, that I think is a real trend. And, Mm. and, you know, and just based on this, I was initially of the impression that probably, you know, it doesn't matter or it's going to go back. But I think if people find efficiency and productivity gains, then that is a very strong incentive for business to actually apply that, Um, Mm. right? So, I mean, that's sort of my thought.
1: Fascinating. I mean, we've worked from home at the full since we started here, Um, partly because uh, Bruce was number one in the the country, was living on the Gold Coast and I was living in Sydney and that's kind of how it happened. Um, uh, dean our first uh, investment uh, advisor was in melbourne it just kind of worked out that that's how the business kind of grew in the us they were much more office based uh and, and preferred it strongly for for a very long period of time i'm i'm gonna go half and half on that mate i think you're probably right but i have to say we're very fortunate to fool we have a very open trusting culture but i reckon there's a whole lot of bosses out there who can't wait to get their people back in their offices under their noses so they can watch them and see what they're doing right like i, I would like to think business is much more enlightened but I, but I imagine there's a reasonably decent sized group of bosses who will never admit it necessarily directly though some will happily uh, who would be much happier if people were actually where they could see them uh, because that's kind of how we you know I, I was I gotta say I won't name the company but I was with the company I was with the company and I was literally criticized for not spending enough time in my chair at my desk no matter what else I was doing it wasn't your you work is bad your your outcomes are terrible um, it was literally well you're not you're not at your desk enough like so, man if that's the <laughs> You know, if, if, if that's the kind of cultural baggage that company has, uh, frankly, I'm happy not to be there anymore. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those, it's one, and don't try and guess, because I'm not going to acknowledge if it even is, and it may be the one you're thinking of. But it's just one of those things where you go, man, that is, that is just something special, right? It, when, when the quality of the work and the, and the outcomes, are not even part of the conversation, but it's, taken hey, you please sit in your chair more often? Despite the fact that I was like around the rest of the building, speaking with other people, like, you know, it was just a very different way of working. This company just had a very specific culture, which is that's what they wanted to see. Okay, I can do that. Sure. Um, I'm I'm a little skeptical, but I hope you're right because it's better for everybody and frankly, a better way to do business. I fear you may not be as right as you hope you are. And I hope you are uh, just because that's how people tend to think, particularly bosses.
2: Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, again, I don't have a very strong, I just, uh, you know, I I was sort of more in line with you. I just thought after reading that, the transcript, I thought that was interesting because it was coming from sort of an SMB um, point of Um, view. And as I I said, I think I'm delineating here between large and small. Um, You know, there's more incentive at the smaller end to actually uh, optimize because, you you know, um, at the smaller end, you, you know, there's less money to um, destroy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, uh, so, so every dollar counts um, if that's the case then you know optimization is 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 really important so anyways uh, again i i don't really know
1: i mean again i i don't want to keep referring to social media because frankly it's already out of date but some of my listeners will hear this but also interesting apparently the is reporting that one three cabs is now signing up with woolies to be to do its grocery deliveries uh, given how few people oh, are taking cabs these days. So, it's, you know, the, I, look, great for One Three Cabs, right? I mean, Uber's Uber's the, the, the kind of cool company, or at least it was until I had their own internal dramas. But it's been kind of, you know, the, the one of the one of the cool kids. Um, kind of nice, not that I care either way, but, you know, good, good to see One Three Cabs doing something different. Um, and also, you know, again, that sense that obviously, well, these needs the drivers, One Three Cabs needs the business, another sign of maybe how, th- well, obviously, right now, things are changing, things will go back to normal to some degree. But it be fascinating to see what doesn't change. All right. Should we move on to a couple of questions from our favorite, the Motley Fool Let's do that. All right.
0: Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
1: Mate, did we talk about cryptocurrencies last week? I don't think we did. I think we did, actually. We did talk about cryptos? All right. Great. Yeah. Let's move on to the next question then. was from Jack. Uh, Jack says, hearing you love Instagram questions, I thought I'd ask one. Good on you, Jack. <laughs> the question... Can you convince my friends to get off Ray's and use a better alternative, i.e. ComSec as a broker? I have tried and failed and was hoping the experts could give it a shot. Many thanks, Jack. Hashtag, you know what it's gonna be, don't you? Get Doc on uh-huh. Insta. <laughs> All right, buddy, you, know, you get first shot at this. What, yeah. Well, firstly, do you agree with Jack? Should people be abandoning Ray's from the platform? And if so, why?
2: Well, so I'm, I'm. not like I mean, you know, uh, depends on, again. So like I mean, for for investing small amounts of money, I think Ray's and you know things like Comsec Pocket, they're actually quite handy. Um, but they they all come with limitations in terms so of what you can invest. You know, mostly ETFs, and so they're limited investment um, universe, right? And yeah. and if you are going to be investing more then you probably want to broker. I, you know, I'm not at all a fan of uh, using Comsec Lodge because I mean it seems a bit expensive to me, and. So, why use the expensive uh, platform? Although I realized yeah. that, uh, although I realized that, you know, it's, you know, pennies on the, um, well, I guess, you know, it's only little bits of small differences here. Like, I mean, probably NAB, NAB trade is a little bit cheaper. Um, so, yeah, like, I mean, if, if I, think, I think the main distinguishing factor would be if you are investing in individual shares and you want to have, you know, pick pick stocks, then you want to have access to an online broker who gives you the full suite of things. Um, Pick one that you like, uh, whether it is, you know, um, the platform from uh, NAB to NAB Trade, or whether it's Comsec, or, you know, there's IGI Markets, there's, you know, there's all the Saxo Markets, there's a whole heap. So, um, I'm not recommending any specific uh, platform, but, yeah, that would be my sort of Rule of thumb, uh, in general, I'm again I'm a big fan of individual investing in individual equities. So you, for that, you would need a proper broker. But uh, I'm probably not making a very forceful case. I'll leave that to you.
1: <laughs> May I uh, look? I, I'm 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 torn. I've got to say, Jack, and the reason I'm torn is because this uh, we don't want to ever let the the perfect be the enemy of the good right? And so that's, now good could also be the enemy of perfect, right? Cause we don't try and do even better, but that tension is really, really important. Here's why I say that. If people are using raise and they want not to do anything else before that, then raise has been wonderful for them. If it helps them start a savings and investment habit, then that is spectacularly great. And so I'm always really careful. If, if it's raise or nothing, then go raise every day of the week, right? Super, super clear, easy, straightforward, makes a whole lot of sense. The problem with those sort of platforms, I don't just like raise it all. Um, the prob- Well, at least, you know, conceptually is if you're only rounding up, you're not going to ever make money out of this thing. I mean, you make a little bit of money and so be it. If you are rounding up and adding more, then you can do it cheaper without the fees and with probably better options somewhere other than raise. So raise is kind of like a gateway drug in a good way. <laughs> you know, it gets people into a, a habit, into a market, into a, you know a planning mindset, which is really great, but it's almost inevitably not the best platform for them to use if they're trying to try optimise their investing. And so, I'm really, it, now, and that's great, right? In, in a lot of ways, that's great because it is that midpoint, which is fantastic. Um, but I do think for most people, doing only that, or and here's why, here's why I raise it both good and bad. It's good if it starts a habit. It's terrible if it is the only thing they do. It's kind of like the, the climate change stuff, right? And I don't want to get into the politics of that, but. So for some people, you know, worrying about reusable plastic is a great way to start thinking more broadly about their environmental impact. Other people say, well, I'm not using reusable bags anymore. I'm not using single-use plastic bags anymore. I'm doing my bit. And that's not anywhere near close to enough if we are going to avoid climate change. So you've kind of got that, you know, there's both potential elements to, to these sort of solutions that are imperfect. They are something. They are better than nothing as long as they're not the only thing. Uh, So, look, for what is worth your mates, Jack, I would say to them, once you know, once you've had your eyes open to the power of investing, of regular saving and regular investing, there are better platforms, cheaper platforms, more uh, fully featured platforms, as you say, Doc, out there than Raise. And I would absolutely say once people have got their, you know, kind of, once they are in the swing, look somewhere else for those options. Comsec Pocket is a really good option. Um, ComSec itself, I, I take your point about the cost. I, I use ComSec, I always have. Uh, Part of that's just laziness and kind of inertia. Uh, I could get a better price somewhere else, I'm sure. That being said, I also hear some terrible things about other platforms. I've used direct Brokers, it is woeful, but it's super cheap. Um, uh, Nabtrade, you mentioned, we've had some threads on our member forums about people who've struggled with that website. I, I can't verify otherwise, so I don't want to cast aspersions, but for what that's worth, I would happily pay a little bit more. For every you know, I trade, so infrequently, I'd be happy to pay a little bit more to know that I knew the broker, I knew the website. The customer service is pretty good, although that's also had its criticism, criticisms. Um, so you know, I, I don't care whether people use Comsec or not. But moving on to something else, investing in yourselves is a really, really positive thing. And when you start to get larger amounts of money, you're much, much better off doing that. And as you say, Doc, making your own investment decisions. Um, what, I mean, you can still buy indexes or indices, I should say, ETFs through Comsec anyway, if you want to. Um, but if you want to buy individual stocks and we think you can make more money doing that, if you do it well, um, that can be a a great way to do it. So I think if you're on RAISE, Jack, if you're friends, or Jack's friends, if you're listening, if you're on RAISE, then fantastic. Um, Good on you for getting going. As you mature as an investor, as you start to save large amounts of money, we hope you are, look to a more traditional broker platform to give you more flexibility and and save you some cash. Any more on that, Doc? Uh, No, I think you've covered it all. I'm going to sneak one more question in, mate. And because we've got so many... Can I ring the bell on a mailbag extra episode this Sunday? Let's do that. Hey, there we go. Doc has given it the Doc Mahanti imprimatur. We can definitely go ahead with that, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Wasn't really a surprise, let's be honest, but, you know, it's always nice to have it confirmed. Before we do the last question, mate, I want to tell people they can join your service, Multifull Extreme Opportunities. Doc's works with Kevin on EO. It is a service looking for, as you won't be surprised to know by now, if you've listened to this podcast a few times, the best growth companies on the ASX, the businesses that, yes, carry some more risk because they are smaller or maybe more daring, uh, but have bigger potential upsides than the average bear. You won't find NAB or ANZ at extreme opportunities, Doc. Is that fair to say? That is very fair. You will find some really cool little businesses that, as I said, they're young, they're small, they're probably more fragile than the average. Some of them will go badly. Some of them will go very, very well. And if and when they do, that's where the money is, Doc. I mean, that that's the, the style you've used from, you've kind of learned from and somehow you know, I'll say copied. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you've taken some of the best of our U S rule breaker service run by our co-founder, David Gardner now for, I guess, 20 odd years, maybe, maybe, not, yeah, maybe, must be 20 years um, to, to bring that to the Australian market, to the Australian audience. Uh, rule Breakers is doing a spectacular job and we can't suggest that you'll necessarily deliver the same results as David Gardner, but that approach is working really, really well in the States. It's working well here there is absolutely going to be volatility, including times like these, when people freak out about growth stocks, but as and when these businesses deliver on their promise, there is four or five, six, seven, potentially 10 times their value available if they do it well. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, that's fair. And I think, you know, you can liberally use the word copy. Um, there's no shame <laughs> in, in copying uh, uh, some of the best and, and David Gardner is probably one of the, you know not just one, in my mind, probably the best growth investor um, I know of. So, um, yeah, no shame in copying uh, that style. It's, it's a little bit, of, uh, I guess, adapted for the Australian market because of the right. size of companies. It's a little bit more venture capital style here like because it's really small companies that we are looking at, um, you know, small market caps, low floats, uh, and things like that. So the share prices are very volatile uh, for that reason. But yeah, ex- expect, uh, you know, you'd expect... Um, lots of movements in these stocks, but yeah, you know, we, we still think that um, you know you'd get, you know, you'd get. I, I think it, it epitomizes sort of our way of long-term investing because you know to get those huge multi-baggers, you need to invest for the long term. You need to actually be patient, and um, you know, and therefore, if you know, I like to say, the the stocks that go up, you know, if they go up say five x, you know, that can actually make up for like three stocks that go to zero, right? I'm not saying that you know you're going to get. You know, you can make up for five stocks and go to zero. But I'm saying that you you could actually lose three and still be okay. Um, The math um, is
1: just incredibly, incredibly, incredibly in favor of that style of investing, right? If you're good at it and you are, then being able to pick a couple that are going up very strongly, you can afford some losses if they happen. If they don't happen, even better. But if they do happen, you're still ahead. That's the benefit of the way you invest.
2: Yeah, and we have had some, you know, some early successes, you know, we have had some three baggers and stuff like that. So it's stuff that have gone up, you know, three times in a relatively short period, I'd say, like, it's still early days, you know, a little over two years for some of them that have done really well. Um, So, yeah, uh, I mean, but you just have to assume that you're going to get volatility and be comfortable with that. So it's for that. So I've invested a little bit longer time horizons.
1: So you, need to be, you need to have a long time horizon. You need to be not risk averse. If you don't like risk, don't please don't join EO. Uh, yes. I think we'll look after you just because you won't have the stomach for it. You need to follow. But if you are in that mindset, if you are prepared to take a little bit more risk for potentially meaningfully higher returns, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's EO for extreme opportunities, EO podcast, and you can get a special deal to join Doc and Kevin at Multifill Extreme Opportunities. All right, mate, that ad is out of the way. Let's get on to the last question from Richard before we oh, we'll come back on Sunday. But you know, just for this particular episode, hi Scott and Doc, I'm new to the pod, and it's a great antidote to the strange world of self isolation. Richard, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if that's a comment on us or a comment on self isolation. Um, arguably, you could listen to uh, two cats uh, arguing, fighting in the backyard, and that'd still be a, an antidote to self isolation. But we'll take the we'll take the compliment. He says, "I'm in my mid thirties and starting to put a bit of money into shares for the long term." Good man. I have a few individual Australian shares and a few international ETFs. When it comes to diversifying, is it worth starting to look at some of the more creative ETFs or REITs? I see there's a lot out there in terms of having coverage of real estate, infrastructure, bonds, etc. I wonder if that's going off the reservation a bit and should just stick to what I'm most comfortable with, which is equities. Full on Richard. Good man, full on Richard. Uh, Doc, what do you reckon? Should, should Richard stick with his knitting? or should you be going to some of the more creative options out
2: there? You know, this is what I've said. Richard, Matt, you have already sort of answered your question by your last line where he say, should I stick with the <laughs> most comfortable, um, uh, you know, what I feel most comfortable, which is equities. The thing is that there are lots of different ways to make money, right? You can, But if you're comfortable with something, that gives you a behavioral edge. And the behavioral edge really is that that allows you to tolerate volatility. It enables you to sort of, Ride through difficult um, environment and difficult investing climate, and and every type of asset has difficult investing, you know, climate. They might be at different points in time for different types of assets, but they all do. So, uh, I think that's, to me, at least in my mind, the biggest thing is you should stick with what you're comfortable, with, what you think you can ride out. So, yeah, I would just you know. I would if I personally, I stick with equities, you know, I've, you know I've, I've got some a little bit of investment in property, for example, I have no REITs exposure whatsoever, and yeah again, again I, think, I think if you don't know much about something, then why get go there because you know that that's where all the problems start happening you know so uh, it's good to stick to something that you know and you appreciate and you understand and you feel comfortable with.
1: I'm going to agree. Uh, I'm going to add a little bit of color. Uh, Richard, it's good to be diversified, but you don't have to be Noah. You don't need two of everything. Uh, so just be, be thoughtful about that. I think to Doc's point, unless you, unless you have a good reason to add them, like if you're saying, well, should I, because they're there, which it kind of sounds like you are, and it's a reasonable question. Um, the answer is almost certainly no. You know, um, I, I, could, I could own gold and, and art and wine and uh, all sorts of stuff because it's there. I could own Bitcoin because it's there. Um, it's reasonable, like with your stock selection, to say, which stocks do I think are going to be the best for me and for my portfolio? Similarly, which asset class are going to be the best? You don't need bonds in your portfolio. I am convinced of that. Um, and again, not you personally, but an investor generally, as always, we can't give specific advice, but I, I don't, I don't reckon anyone has bonds in their portfolio necessarily. Um, similarly, look, the only thing I would say is you talk about some international issues you've already got. I think you're already there. I mean, it feels like, you know, you've got good coverage, you've got good diversification. Um, there's stuff out there. It's kind of sexy and cool and, you know, everyone's talking about it, and so we kind of feel like maybe I should, maybe I should. That's an ever-present behavioral bias a behavioral problem. As Doc says, you've already kind of nailed that, right? You've already you've already dealt with some of that stuff. Um, I reckon you're on a pretty good path from the sound of it. Anything else from you, Doc? No, I, th- I,
2: think, that, that, I think that's it. I think it's called.
1: Now, we have got a mailbag episode this Sunday, which means we need questions. Now, we have got some for this week, to be fair, but if you want to get in touch, and we think you should, we'd like to hear from you, because, well, you know, this, is, this, is, this podcast is for you, believe it or not. Doc and I do like talking and like the sound of our own voices, but we can do that without recording it if we wanted to. The only reason to put this out is because our listeners hopefully enjoy it and get some value from it. Now, if you have a question or comment, if a topic you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to know about it because we can talk, again, about stuff we like to talk about as long as we want, but we'd be far more interested in making sure they are relevant to you. So hit us up on the socials. Let's start with Twitter because that's where Doc is, the only social he's on. Uh, at Anirban Mahanti is Doc's handle. Mine is at TMF Scott P. And the corporate account is at the Motley Fool AU. Direct messages, tag us, use our, ta- uh, our Twitter handle in your tweet. if you want to get our thoughts on something. We don't necessarily answer them directly on those social platforms, by the way, but we use them as fodder for our Malvague episode. So hit us up on the Twitter machine if you like doing that. If you're a little bit less anti-Mark Zuckerberg than Doc is, you can get us on We get a couple of us on Facebook. You can go to Scott Phillips Money, or one word, or The Motley Fool Australia. That's Facebook. And again, same thing. Feel free to drop us a note there, a direct message or a comment. And if you're on Instagram and hashtag GetDocOnInsta is always a popular hashtag. I'd love to see that one. Then again, I'm at TMF Scott P and The Fool's Corporate Account at The Motley Fool AU. You can hit us up there and get your question hopefully answered on the mailbag. I did say last week, and I'll say again, we're actually getting too many to answer all of them now, Doc, which is kind of cool. I feel a little bit bad for some of our commenters and questions who ask us those questions, um, but we will try and choose the ones that are new, that are different, that we think have most applicability to the most of our audience. So if you take those thoughts into account as you submit your questions and comments, that increases the chance that you'll be able to have them answered in the podcast. All right, that out of the way, mate, that is us. So before we go, we want to remind our listeners they can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or their favorite Android podcast app. And I will say again, mate, not to bag Apple, but we are still hearing reports of some um, uh, Apple Podcasts app users not downloading the mailbag episodes, weirdly enough. I've asked Triple M guys to look at it. They don't see anything in the in the feed. I don't know if it's our fault, their fault, or Apple's fault. doesn't really matter. But just if you are an Apple user and you're not seeing those mailbag episodes, Make sure you seek them out. Um, Maybe jump on another podcast feed or download it straight from the Tripland app. You can also do that. Um, So there are options for you. If you want to make sure you hear the mailbag, we'd hate for you to miss out. And of course, once you do enjoy that mailbag app, give us a rating, give us a review. Throw us some stars, as David Gardner likes to say, because, hey, where are you going, man? I mean, because we want other people to find the podcast too and ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to make sure that we can build that audience and help other people enjoy, hopefully benefit from, this podcast as well and of course you can get some foolishness straight to your inbox and a little offer for dividend investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple m triple m that's it for this week's motley fool money we'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight fool on
0: Full on